Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. One of the most perplexing elements of Donald Trump's 2016 electoral victory was the overwhelming support he received from white evangelicals, a demographic that has stubbornly clung to him in the face of everything he has done. The fact that a thrice-married reality TV star has been able to hold on to the moral majority through thick and thin the last few years seems to many to be a sort of cultural contradiction. However, some would argue that the evangelical support of Trump makes total sense given that, in spite of his supposed moral failings, he was just the sort of man they were looking for. This is the argument my guest today, Kristen Kobe-Dumez, makes in her new book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, published by Live Right in 2020. The book traces a century of evangelical ideas around masculinity, gender, family, and identity and how these ideas became intertwined with ideas around nationalism, militarism, foreign policy, and race. The result is a book that covers a century of cultural and intellectual development and gives us a sense of how Trump turned out to be the right man for the job of winning the evangelical vote. Kristen Dumais is a professor in the history department at Calvin University. She is also the author of A New Gospel for Women, Catherine Bushnell, and the Challenge of Christian Feminism. Her writing has appeared in a number of outlets, including the Washington Post, and she regularly blogs at Pathios' Anxious Bench. So Kristen Dumas, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we always like to have our guests introduce themselves and tell us a bit about who they are. So could you tell us maybe what your research tends to focus on and what you generally find yourself writing about? Sure. And I should probably start um, by helping with my um, impossible to pronounce name. It's actually Kristen Cobus Dumay, uh, Dutch <sighs> and French combination. <laughs> and, and my apologies. I usually try to uh, give give that uh, up front. So yes, Dumay I, is I the last I probably should name. have asked at the beginning. So that's that's on me as much <laughs> no, as no, you. No. So. Uh, so yes, yeah. I um, my research, I'm, I'm trained in the study of American religious history. And uh, with a focus on gender. And so my first book was a look at the history of Christian feminism in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I really focused on uh, Methodist women at that point uh, and uh, really trying to tease out this relationship between Christianity and feminism and all of its complexities in an earlier period of American history. That uh, research then led me to kind of start digging around uh, in the religious formation of Hillary Clinton, uh, because, of course, she is a progressive Methodist. And uh, whenever I would hear her talk, she just reminded me so much of uh, the, the Methodist women in the early 20th century that I had studied. It was that research then that led me to... Um, pay very close attention to uh, evangelicals in politics, particularly in uh, 2015, 2016. And um, at that point, I um, actually 
dusted off some old research that I had um, started actually years earlier on white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And after the 2016 vote, I decided I, I really needed to do something with that and um, and figure out, you know, why, how we could make sense of evangelicals supporting Trump in such great numbers. And um, and what I understood from the historical research I had already done was that um, this wasn't a kind of betrayal of evangelical values. It wasn't um, uh, kind of faith being co-opted by politics, but there was a, a long history of deep affinities between evangelical values and um, what, what Trump himself was uh, representing and embodying. Wonderful. So that kind of speaks to my first question I wanted to ask. Um, so you introduced the book, as you said, by um, talking about how it's a certain way or a certain attempt to explain why white evangelicals supported Trump in such high proportion in the 2016 election. Although I think a lot of people would be surprised that unlike a lot of polemics being written about Trump today, Trump doesn't make an appearance here in the book until a couple hundred pages in. So can you explain what this book is trying to tell us about evangelicals and Trump here and why for you explaining the Trump phenomena means not mentioning him for about 200 pages? Yeah, I mean, he's he's on the first page of the book, and then you're right, he disappears, and that was very intentional. And we actually debated whether or not to put him on on the first page uh, of the book. Uh, and he's he's not on the cover, he's not in the title. Um, but so this research really started more than 15 years ago for me, so long before Trump was on the horizon in in terms of you know our president, and um, it it had come. I, I started looking at this subject. Um, particularly evangelical masculinity and militarism in the early 2000s. And it was actually my students at Calvin who who brought the topic to my attention. I had been lecturing on Teddy Roosevelt in my U.S. history course, showing them how ideas of gender and masculinity could be linked to religion and to ideas of the nation and to foreign policy. And a couple guys came up to me after class and said, Professor Dumay, you really need to read this book that everybody's looking at right now. And that was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Uh, which was all the rage in college dorms, in churches, in in the early 2000s. And so I did, and they were absolutely right. And uh, this was 2005, 2006, uh, when a lot of survey data was coming out on white evangelicals and uh, the Iraq war, their overwhelming support, disproportionate support, not just for the Iraq war, but for preemptive war in general, uh, for condoning the use of torture, aggressive foreign policy. And so I became fascinated with um, trying to understand how evangelical ideals of gender, and especially masculinity, might be connected with, uh, with their ideas of foreign policy. So I was I was kind of uh, investigating this topic, doing some serious research long ago. I ended up setting the, it aside for a time. I had my first book to finish and other things came up. Uh, but one of the reasons I, I didn't pick it right back up was um, this, this question I had of how mainstream was this? Because I was finding some really disturbing things when I was looking into ideals of evangelical masculinity. I was I, I couldn't figure out, is this just fringe? How mainstream is this? And you know, and, and how much does this really matter? Um, and then fast forward to 2015, 2016, um, that's when uh, the question of how mainstream and how much this matters really became clarified for me. 
So when it came to writing this book, uh, you know, I wanted I wanted to tell a, a longer history uh, because Trump is only the the latest uh, kind of manifestation of a longstanding pattern. Uh, Trump did not create the situation that we're in. In many ways, he's the culmination of this longstanding history. And so I wanted to make that very clear to readers that Trump did not cause what, what's happening now. And let's say we remove Trump from the scene, uh, this this history uh, and this tradition is not going to go away. And so, so I really wanted to situate this present historical moment in terms of a much longer history, as I think it must be. Excellent. So to kind of turn to that history, um, the story you tell, you begin at kind of the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th. So at this point, there were increasing levels of industrialization and urbanization, and the ideas of living on the frontier were becoming increasingly absent from reality as we were starting to colonize even the Pacific coast, leaving little room for a frontier for cowboys to go wander around. So this, you argue, is the beginning of a lot of changes in evangelical ideas about gender and identity, particularly masculinity, as it tried to continue giving people a sense of meaning while also producing forms of identity that were more suited to an increasingly domesticated lifestyle. So can you unpack some of what happened here and how the early 20th century would establish a lot of the dynamics that would be in play for the next century? Yeah, it was really hard to figure out where to start this book. <laughs> and I think that's a problem for many historians, uh, whatever the topic. But uh, so this is a trade book, and I had to, you know, always keep in mind, you know, the limitations of maybe the average reader of how much history do you want? Uh, and um, but I knew I needed to at least glance back to the the late nineteenth and early twentieth century because it does kind of set things up uh, so well. And, and I want to stress that kind of the, the way in which um, evangelicals were understanding gender and the role in the American nation in the early 20th century uh, were, were not distinct from the way many Americans were. And in fact, I don't, um, when, when I'm talking about you know, Teddy Roosevelt, which is, you know, uh, that kind of in, had inspired this project, my teaching on Teddy Roosevelt to begin with, um, and um and then I, I saw that in kind of contemporary discussions of evangelical masculinity, they love Teddy Roosevelt. So he's always brought up um, in in these in these narratives of you know ideal Christian masculinity, and um, so so I wanted to have that as a touchstone. But I think even more importantly, I just I really wanted to set out for my readers what gender is and how it changes over time and how ideas of masculinity and femininity are not just kind of, you know, particularly for religious readers, they are not just timeless, static, you know, handed down by God through the Bible and, you know, valid for all, um, all human history. That ideas of what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman change dramatically according to time and place, um, you know, in, in terms of the cultural context, historical context. And so that was really one of my primary purposes to show how, you know, what it meant to be a Christian man really was has always been in flux. Uh, in the 19th century, you have more of an emphasis on self-restraint, but then in the American South uh, and including among Southern evangelicals, you have more of an idea of this culture of honor and mastery and dominance over women, children, and enslaved people. And, um, and that these these 
ideas of masculinity are very uh, responsive to changing economic uh, circumstances, to changing ideas of foreign policy, and that um, I just really wanted to make sure that my readers understood how complicated and how dynamic ideas of masculinity and femininity are. And that was really important for me to to, um, establish in this book, knowing that many of my readers would be coming from a place where they understood gender quite differently in much more static terms. And then, yes, uh, by looking at the 20th century, you can see an embrace um, among many white Protestants of uh, a muscular Christianity. Uh, but again, I want to stress this was not unique to evangelicals. In fact, liberal Protestants were arguably more enthusiastic endorsers of this this muscular Christianity. And I wanted to get World War One in in uh, the story as well, also to show change over time. Because while you have some evangelicals like Billy Sunday who embrace muscular Christianity and American militarism, you have many other conservative Protestants who are much more ambivalent about militarism, whereas many liberal Protestants are gung-ho, you know, let's go to war and, and, and you know, make the world safe for democracy. And, and so I, I just needed to set up that things have not always been the way they are now, and there are surprises when you look uh, to the past. Uh, which should make us very curious about how things came to be. Um, So by the 1940s, 1950s, how we have conservative Protestants embracing militarism, embracing kind of quote unquote traditional gender roles uh, for the sake of Christian America. And that's really where the story picks up. But I just needed to to show things have not always been the way they are now. And so we should be asking some questions. um, Why this and why now? One of the central figures in your narrative is John Wayne, who occupies a surprisingly central place in much evangelical rhetoric, partly because he came to embody so much of what they hold dear. You write, quote, Wayne Sergeant Stryker from the Sands of Iwo Jima and Wayne himself combined the mythology of the American cowboy with that of the freedom fighting soldier. Wayne never actually served in the military, yet Wayne Sergeant Stryker stood as a symbol of American toughness in phrases Wayne uttered on screen, saddle up and lock and load, entered the lexicon of American conservatism. In time, too, Wayne's embodiment of heroic masculinity would come to serve as the touchstone for authentic Christian manhood. So can you explain the dynamics Wayne came to embody at this point in time and how evangelicals found themselves adapting John Wayne, who did not himself lead a religious life, as a symbol for their own faith? Yeah. So when I first started to really look at uh, evangelical books on masculinity, and this was in the early 2000s, I was startled by the fact that, you know, you'll find a Bible verse here or there, but for all their talk of being, you know, Bible-believing Christians, when it came to ideals of masculinity, uh, most writers drew their inspiration from Hollywood movies and from kind of mythical conceptions of, of, of manhood. And um, a couple of uh, their favorite characters that popped up with regularity, one was uh, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. 
And then the other was John Wayne. And, and kind of as a given, like we all know that, you know, John Wayne is the icon of American manhood. We all know that, uh, you know, John Wayne sets the standard. And I thought that's, that's really funny. That's, that's really um, uh, somewhat bizarre. And so I was surprised by that too. But if you understand the role that Wayne played in, in how he became a celebrity in the 1940s, uh, first as this cowboy hero, and by the late 1940s, uh, in the the early Cold War context, how he was like, you know, he was the good guy. He was the good guy who would defeat evil using violence as necessary, but he always had righteousness on his side. And then he also stars in World War II films like The Sands of Iwo Jima, where he brings this this American heroism, this you know kind of cowboy heroism to the to the world stage. Uh, and then he he ends up, you know, by the 70s, starring in the Green Berets. And so he takes this kind of uh, individualist cowboy, um, you know, bring order through violence heroism, which has then been blended with, you know, the good war, World War II, America's savior um, imagery. And then he brings that to the battlefields in Vietnam. And the combination of those three just presents this this really powerful mythology that conservatives embrace in the 1960s and 1970s when it seems like the rest of America is questioning these values, is questioning this kind of nostalgic um, masculine power, white uh, patriarchal power in many ways. And so evangelicals who um, by the 1970s certainly are feeling nostalgic for an earlier era when they um, perceived uh, themselves to have more power in the 1940s and the 1950s in particular. And so Wayne kind of represents this nostalgic uh, masculinity that they too embrace. And it's it's not just a kind of rough and tough uh, manhood, but it's also militaristic. And and in the uh, during the Vietnam era, conservative white evangelicals were, were strong proponents of uh, the, the war in Vietnam and U.S. military action. Um, and and in this way too, they were they were parting company with with many other Americans, and so Wayne just kind of becomes the symbol of uh, what what was right um, when America a symbol of American greatness and this ideal that many want to embrace so that we can return to that. One topic that comes up at several points throughout the book is race, which evangelicals have a somewhat mixed relationship with. There's a story to be told of evangelicals being initially supportive of civil rights, but slowly finding themselves more concerned with turning their attention to family values. Although you argue that this is perhaps giving them too much credit, since you see a potential connection between the emphasis on family values and racial politics. Given how central family values rhetoric is to white evangelical culture and politics, this is a claim that goes straight to the heart of a lot of what evangelicalism is about. So can you unpack the connection you see between focusing on the politics of the family and the politics of race here? Yeah, you know, if you talk with white evangelicals, um, especially, you know, those who aren't really on the the kind of conservative fringe, you're not going to hear a lot of talk about race. Uh, you know, that might be different now, summer of 2020. Uh, but but even then, there's this idea that um, kind of race doesn't matter, and that their own faith is kind of race uh, neutral. And um, 
when I, again, was looking at the, these conversations around masculinity, what, what struck me was how white their ideas of uh, masculine heroes were. So you have Teddy Roosevelt, you have Douglas MacArthur, you have William Wallace, you have John Wayne. And uh, invariably, their ideal of this this militant masculinity was a white man. And often, I mean, if you look at John Wayne's movies, for example, it's a white man who's bringing order through violence and subduing non-white populations. And so I thought, okay, that's that's interesting. And then I started to look back to kind of the origins of this uh, embrace of a militant white masculinity. And this does take place against the backdrop, um, not just of the Vietnam War, uh, but of um, the civil rights movement. And you're right, the the history of evangelical encounters with race is, is complicated. You've got somebody like Billy Graham, who up to a point was supportive of the civil rights movement. Uh, he desegregated his own crusades, even in the South. And um, and so I think it's important that we we realize there uh, both the variety of responses and the ambivalence um, that many white evangelicals and particularly northern white evangelicals demonstrated towards civil rights. Many were cautiously supportive of limited um, uh, action in in terms of of um, civil rights. Uh, at the same time, I started to see that um, you know, many of these family values issues. Um, were actually very linked to what was going on in 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 terms of the changing racial landscape, and so evangelicals organized around um, the issues of um, uh, kind of uh, uh, Christian schools. And the uh, really what was motivating them um, in their minds or in their words was to keep government intrusion out of schools. Um, but of course, this was happening uh, around the uh, Christian schools that they had just set up, which were essentially um, segregation academies. Uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. Uh, is a great example of this. Uh, where uh, once Brown v. Board of Education was mandated and um, schools were desegregated, many conservative Christians set up their own Christian schools and were keeping them segregated. Uh, when the IRS started cracking down on this, this really helped mobilize uh, conservative evangelicals um, and, and was really one of the key factors in mobilizing um, the religious right. Now, if you listen to how they're talking about this, um, they, they often will not even talk about it in racial terms, although that's absolutely the backdrop. It is for them an issue of keeping the government out of, out of schools and not interfering with the authority of the family, particularly the authority of, well, who's in charge of the family? The patriarch. Um, and so this was an issue of patriarchal authority, of protecting children from purported dangers, and of keeping the government uh, away from from that kind of God-given hierarchical authority. Um, and that's just one example. Um, and if you start looking at these family values issues, race is very much a part of them. Even this nostalgia, right? This nostalgic ideal of, of uh, American ma manhood. That is, uh, or, or even of American greatness generally, as, as, as we uh, are well aware of today, that nostalgia for a time when, you know, Christian America was somehow pure and unsullied, you know, pre-1960s, that only makes sense to white Americans and only to certain white Americans. And so, so many of the, the values, the kind of family values, the religious values that white evangelicals held and hold 
are are um, deeply shaped by their white identity, even if they are not conscious of the fact. And um, and so, yes, I think it was it, it's important to see um, and to make visible the whiteness of their commitments on issues like family values and politics more generally, even if they um, uh, remain oblivious to that or, or prefer to, um, to ignore that fact. Another topic you bring up a lot is femininity and its function within evangelical visions of masculinity and family. So you kick off one of your chapters looking at Maribel Morgan and her book, The Total Woman, which argued for a biblically-based vision of femininity, which involved uh, revering the husband as a masculine hero and being sexually available to him at all times. So this leaves lots of room for abuse, which we'll get to. But I also want to draw attention to this vision of femininity and how it emerged in the early 1970s in the wake of the feminist advances made throughout the 60s, which suggests that these ideas of femininity didn't emerge in a vacuum, but as part of this broader sociological process. So can you unpack this a bit and how you see figures like Morgan possibly trying to undo the 60s and return to this nostalgic vision you were just alluding to uh, in this case of women and families in the 1950s? Yeah, so when people, you know, talk about patriarchy or, uh, you know, uh, even even today, in terms of you know support for Trump, um, with with his you know, misogyny on full display, there's often this question of um, you know how can women <laughs> support this, or you know are you just blaming men for all of this? And and it's it's important to realize that uh, you know women themselves often uh, prop up patriarchal authority structures. And so it was important that I explore that. Um, and, and yes, I have a, I have a chapter on uh, uh, women's own conceptions of femininity during this um, period, the 1960s and 1970s, and how they promoted an ideal of Christian womanhood that very much um, propped up this kind of male protector patriarchal authority um, that is is really the subject of of the book. Uh, and then so Maribel Morgan. Now I, you know, I came across Maribel Morgan decades ago, I think already as a graduate student. And uh, what struck me was just how much people like to, historians, scholars like to roll their eyes, Maribel Morgan, and just kind of, you know, toss toss her aside. Uh, you know, the, it just seems too ridiculous, um, too absurd. That's not really part of, you know, the history uh, that, that we need to um, contend with. But when you look back and you see just how uh, popular her writing was, and um, I mean, she sold millions of copies of, of The Total Woman, and um, her vision of femininity resonated with so many uh, conservative women during that time. This was the time when you know feminists uh, were were uh, you know trying to empower women and say you know you can you can uh, leave the home. You should have all the opportunities that men have. You know, have a career, um, go, go to college, achieve. You know, the the world is yours. For many conservative women, they um, these these simply weren't were options for them. You know, if, if you were already married, a housewife, you didn't have a college education, you had two, three, maybe four kids at home. Um, I mean, 
what what kind of opportunities are those except for, you know, kind of making you feel inferior? Um, some women were were actually quite happy in their roles as housewives during this time. Many were not. And even the the, the Christian literature during this time, um, Maribel Morgan's own book, um, starts off with the assumption that many Christian wives are miserable. Um, and so in that, she's she's actually, you know, has a lot of in common with somebody like Betty Friedan, uh, that that women are not fulfilled, that they are they are stewing with resentment. Um, but the solution that she offered was diametrically opposed to what somebody like Friedan was was suggesting. Essentially, she was saying you you have to make the best of the uh, with the cards that you're dealt. So, um, uh, you know, you're, you're stuck in this marriage or you're in this marriage, um, and um, and things are miserable. How can you make it better? Well, stop complaining, uh, and and understand your husband's needs, and and they are extensive, um, and he needs to. God made him to be a leader. He needs to feel that you respect him. He needs to know that you respect him. God also made him to have you know. Is, um, extensive sexual needs. And it is your job as his wife to meet those needs. And meeting those needs will will help affirm him in his masculinity. It will empower him to be the leader that God made him to be. Um, And so you need to submit to him and you need to really serve him and you need to um, satisfy him. And that that is then your path to happiness. And then he's going to give you more money to spend on things that you want. You're not going to be fighting every day. He's going to come home to you and not take up, you know, in an affair with his secretary. And that is your path to happiness. So I think it reflects the fact that many women were unhappy and dissatisfied with their roles. Um, But to many, this seemed either the the more... um, um, doable path to happiness. And of course, this was all cloaked as this is the Christian um, path to satisfaction within marriage and to happiness generally. Jumping off of that, uh, another element you address is visions of marriage and the ways in which men and women are supposed to relate to and complement one another. So men, as you were just saying, have these kind of voracious sexual appetites that exist as just a sort of brute fact of reality. But the onus is for the most part on women to channel that energy and satisfy that appetite. So this sets up a set of scenarios that are ripe for abuse of various sorts, since men are to some degree left without responsibility for their actions and women are simply supposed to tolerate what comes to them. Can you unpack the dynamics you see being developed in this vision of marriage? Yeah. So um, when I when I started researching this, and one, one of my uh, important sources uh, ended up being sex manuals. And uh, sex manuals were very popular uh, within evangelical circles in the 1960s and 70s, and, and they still are today, actually. Um, and and uh, one of the reasons for this was, you know, the sexual revolution is taking place and Christians were not comfortable with, with, um, this ideal of kind of, uh, of liberation, uh, sexually. And, um, at the same time, they, uh, were struggling to, uh, kind of have, um, uh, figure out how to be, uh, intimate within marriages, what's, what kind of obedient, godly sex looked like. And their answer here uh, was that 
uh, Christians should have like the best sex lives of anyone. And yes, God created men with these these enormous sexual needs, really. Um, and and that was great. Uh, the problem was when men met those needs outside of heterosexual patriarchal marriage. And that's where we get this huge emphasis on um, sexual purity. Uh, but women are the ones who really have to maintain that purity. Um, women who are not married, because it is up to them to not tempt men who are not their husbands to, uh, you, you know, it, the burden was really placed on women. They had to be extremely modest and they could be accused of, you know, of tempting men for, you know, any, any number of reasons. Uh, then when a woman married, it was her job to make sure that all of her husband's sexual needs were met within that heterosexual marriage. So she really needed to, needed to flip the switch on, on uh, the, the night of her marriage. That was not very easy for a lot of Christian women who had grown up with, you know, it just being, you know, hammered in that you it's you need to stay pure. You need to stay pure. You cannot tempt your husband. You have to protect your your virginity. You have to, and then suddenly you have to be this seductress, this, you know, temptress within the marriage relationship. And that wasn't working well for women. It wasn't working well for men. And so a lot of evangelical writers tried to. Um, guide married women to um, relax, to be sexy, to be able to meet their husband's needs. And so these sex manuals are very graphic. <laughs> I have uh, an early uh, uh, chapter of this, actually this chapter I'm talking about was circulated uh, when the book was being shopped out to publishers. And I, I'd heard that one publisher had a hard time circulating that in-house because it was triggering their uh, kind of um, uh, porn, um, filters and, um, again, very graphic teachings to try to make sure that women could be sexually, um, alluring and, uh, know what they were doing to meet their husband's sexual needs. Uh, now, obviously this, this can set up for some, um, difficult situations, this entire framework suggests that, you know, any needs that a man has are God-given and that whenever a man um, goes astray, uh, it, it's really the fault of a woman then. And, and there are uh, really astounding cases uh, and repeated patterns of if a man um, is, does engage in sexual misconduct or sexual abuse, his wife often is blamed uh, for not meeting his sexual needs, or the victim herself is often blamed for, for somehow tempting him. And, and these are really toxic patterns and, and longstanding patterns within evangelical communities. So to move along, one thing that starts to pick up in evangelical rhetoric over time is an increasing use of militarized language to describe their spiritual lives, something that feeds both off of and into their politics. And this can be seen in their support of Reagan. But the figure who you really hone in on to explore this is Oliver North, who evangelicals see as someone who has blended John Wayne's macho-ness with nationalistic and religious fervor. Militaristic rhetoric has been had been simmering for some time in evangelical sermons and writing, but it seems to have taken a distinctive leap forward in this period. So can you unpack how figures like North made the connections between evangelicalism and militarism more explicit throughout the 1980s? 
I became somewhat obsessed with Ollie North when writing this book, which I think is evident when you read it. Uh, so I remember uh, growing up uh, during the the eighties and being really confused about Oliver North because, uh, you know, I would hear great things about him in my conservative circles, and he was this kind of hero. And then I would read, you know, Time Magazine, and it seemed like he was doing some pretty bad stuff. And I, I just, I never really understood him. And I, I, I remember kind of trying to figure this out, and I could just not make sense of it. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I was able to take a, a closer look um, in uh, doing the research for this book. And I think he's a he's actually a really important figure uh, in the in the 1980s. Uh, it kind of uh, in the in the book I start off with uh, the kind of first uh, real best selling book on Christian manhood, uh, maximized manhood by Ed Lewis Cole, and um, that book was really calling out this great need for heroes. And there was an anti hero syndrome in America, you know, since the 1960s, and we were tearing down our heroes. And what what Christians needed were masculine heroes, you know, and uh, it, it's really lead the way. He didn't he didn't uh, cite John Wayne, but but that's that's really the 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 model he he was talking about this kind of militant tough guy masculinity that could lead families and the nation. Uh, and so he thought at that point um, that the answer he was disturbed that a lot of kind of popular sitcoms um, were were kind of ridiculing the patriarchal father the Archie Bunker type. And so he thought that the answer for this, this huge need for heroes, for masculine heroes, needed to come from Christian broadcasting, which was all well and good, except in short order, we had, you know, one televangelist sex scandal after another. And so it seemed like our kind of Christian media heroes weren't quite up to the task. And then along comes Oliver North. And, uh, you know, he, he really comes into the, um, uh, to the center of American attention with the um, Iran-Contra scandal, and uh, and and evangelicals fall in love with him. In fact, he had been working with um, evangelicals in his um, in his uh, position before that in the Reagan White House, and uh, he had uh, converted to evangelical Christianity earlier. He was a true believer. He was like this perfect hero, but he was also the the military hero, um, and not just uh, kind of the military hero on on, on the battlefield, but also in um, in terms of his role in the Iran Contra scandal, that he would kind of skirt. Uh, the rules. He would um, do what needed to be done for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of American goodness. He was serving his president. Um, he was faithful to his president. And yeah, you know, he broke some laws. He was convicted. Um, but he he emerged as this kind of shining hero of, of what, um, what Christian masculinity was all about. He was tough, um, and he was not afraid to break the rules when necessary um, for a greater good. He was courageous, and he becomes this like, remarkable kind of Christian celebrity in the wake of the Iran-Contra hearings, and uh, and for decades after. So, you know, one of his his big supporters is Jerry Falwell Sr., um, and he comes to Liberty University. He also appears at the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, he is a legit religious 
religious hero. And that's where we see this kind of shift taking place that with everything wrong with the rest of American culture, with the rest of the media, um, uh, uh, evangelicals were increasingly saying, you know, the American military is the last bastion of honor and of true patriotism. And evangelicals embrace the military, evangelicals infiltrate the military. And in ensuing years, increasingly, um, military figures uh, begin to displace pastors in terms of really being the the um, the chief authorities on spiritual life, on Christianity itself, that they have such great respect and that um, evangelicalism itself kind of adopts some of this military language and uh, the military ideal of leadership. And, and you see that in full swing by the 2000s. Uh, and, and so uh, by then, you have many of the popular books on Christian manhood are being written by military and former military folks, and, and they are seen as the most legitimate kind of spokesmen for Christian manhood. They have more qualifications, more authentic qualifications than, than Christian pastors do. Moving into the 1990s, evangelicals had to get creative with continuing to animate their base. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, conservatives had to find a new enemy to replace the threat of global communism to keep their adherents ready to tune in, donate, and vote. And the new enemy seems to have been the Clintons. To them, the Clintons embodied all the sorts of social progress they found themselves feeling embattled by. And the result is that evangelical conservatism adjusted itself so that it could focus much of its energy criticizing everything the Clintons represented. So can you unpack the role the Clintons played in the evangelical worldview and the changes they would intentionally or not initiate in evangelical politics? Yeah, well, first I'll say that the 1990s are a really interesting uh, period in evangelicalism and in in this kind of story of evangelical masculinity because it's a it, it's a really complicated time and the word that comes up over and over again in evangelical discussions of masculinity at that time is confusion there was confusion. Like, what does it mean to be a man? The Cold War had ended. And up until then, all of these ideals of militant masculinity were framed against the Cold War context. All right, we need to fight communism. Um, the Vietnam War had been so um, uh, kind of foundational. And all of a sudden, that's gone. The threat is done. Where do we go now? And there was a lot of variety within evangelical circles in, in terms of trying to answer that question. Do we... Um, uh, you know, do we embrace a softer patriarchy? Many thought that was the way. Um, do we, we, you know, the feminists aren't going anywhere. The, the uh, nature of, of labor has changed such that many Christian wives were also out in the workforce. Maybe we need to shift our ideas of masculinity. Um, and so, so it was actually a time of, um, experiment and diversity of thinking within evangelical communities uh, around gender and um, and around the American nation as well. Uh, and so the culture wars were, um, it, it was kind of an open question of, you know, where things were going to go next. But then we did have the Clintons and uh, the Clintons, I mean, both of them, each of them, 
in different ways stood for kind of all that was bad uh, in the evangelical worldview. So, you know, Clinton was a draft dodger. Um, uh, you know, he was a Southerner, but he just, you know, apart from that, he, um, he, he just didn't. He was a Baptist, but he, he didn't fit their ideals of uh, American masculinity, uh, certainly in terms of their embrace of militarism. He was a liberal. He was a Democrat. So they were not fans of Bill Clinton. They were really not fans of Hillary Clinton. And uh, it, she was a feminist, a career woman. Uh, she was getting uh, really attacked by conservatives already uh, when she was first lady of Arkansas for not ex- uh, taking on her husband's name. Uh, she only did that uh, eventually uh, to kind of quell her critics. She was a deeply religious person. She was teaching Sunday school in her Methodist church in Arkansas, right? She was, she took her faith very seriously, theologically astute. Uh, but in terms of these cultural issues, she, um, she really went against, um, all of uh, conservative evangelicals' cultural and political values. And then when she gets to the White House, uh, I mean, all of this baggage comes along with her. Uh, and it didn't help that she made that quip about, you know, staying home and baking cookies. Uh, that just proved everything that um, evangelicals thought they knew about her. But as First Lady, too, one of the things that really bothered um, conservative evangelicals, and they were looking uh, for things to bother them about both Clintons, but with with Hillary Clinton, it was her international activism, her work um, um, for international women's rights, her Beijing speech, uh, and and that in particular. I mean, it fed into kind of new world order conspiracy theories among conservatives, but it was also seen as a, a dire threat to once again the authority of the family, the authority of parents, the authority of the patriarch to dictate uh, what their ideal gender roles would be and also um, how they would raise their children. And um, they did not want the UN interfering in terms of rights of children, in terms of rights of women. And uh, they really, really resisted uh, Hillary Clinton's work um, in, in this respect as well. And I haven't even mentioned Monica Lewinsky yet, right? So there, there was a lot going on. And then the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal really reinforced uh, their ideal that, um, you know, that the other, that Democrats, liberals, uh, the Clintons were morally corrupt and that, you know, we could not have that kind of morally corrupt leadership in the White House. And of course, there are some amazing quotes uh, that many conservative evangelicals uh, have on record with regard to Bill Clinton and his moral failings and why, you know, that would destroy the nation and we could not have that represented in the Oval Office that um, are coming back to haunt them today, uh, given our current uh, occupant of the White House. Come September 11, 2001, with the attacks on the World Trade Center, evangelicals would again find themselves with a new force to contend with the threat of radical Islam in the Middle East. You contextualize this moment with a number of authors writing throughout the late 1990s and early 2000s about evangelical masculinity and an idealized sort of hero that could be found in Jesus, 
albeit a very particular version of him that maybe took more inspiration from Braveheart than scripture. So can you unpack this synthesis of religiosity and masculinity and how it went from being a somewhat niche approach to identity in the 90s to being a core pillar of our politics in the wake of 9-11? Yeah, so in the 1990s, again, this was this time of confusion. There were multiple um, visions of masculinity that were kind of bandied about. Uh, The most popular was the tender warrior. So you still have the warrior, um, but we need tenderness and a more emotive masculinity. And this was um, really all the rage with promise keepers in the 1990s. Um, the, the kind of the, t- the moment when the evangelical men's movement kind of burst on the national stage. But already by 1997, 1998, certainly, we saw this kind of backlash forming within evangelical communities against this emotive and in some cases even egalitarian masculinity. There was the idea, um, and, and part of this was animosity towards the Clintons and, and feeling a, a need to kind of reclaim power at the national level. Uh, but there, there was this this movement to um, to move away from the tender, to drop the tender, and to embrace the warrior. And and this is um, so. These books are being written in the late 1990s. Uh, a couple published in the late 1990s, but in early 2001, a number of books come out that are um, you know claiming that we need to ditch the tender. <laughs> Uh, because you don't want tenderness in the trenches. And after all, you know, we're at war, culture wars here. Uh, and and Eldridge's Wild at Heart is hugely important here. And you know, Braveheart helps motivate this kind of return to the, the warrior masculinity. Um, James Dobson's bringing up boys, like kind of embracing testosterone, um, teaching your boys to, you know, use guns, play with guns, and, and you know, do not let feminists strip them of their masculinity. Um, Doug Wilson comes out with a book, Future Men, very militaristic conception of boyhood and manhood. All of these books are on the shelves in the early months of 2001. Then September 11, terrorist strike. And, you know, as a story, and it's tempting to kind of go back and imagine, you know, how much would this um, kind of backlash against a kinder, gentler Christian manhood have taken hold if it weren't for 9-11? Because this just amplifies this militant uh, message in ways that it, it's hard to overstate. And so you know, these the, the sales of these books, particularly Eldridge and Dobson, just go through the roof, you know, millions of copies sold. And it resonates deeply within conservative evangelical communities, this return to militancy, because now we have once again a real battle to fight. And and they're they're quite clear that, you know, radical Islam in their wor- words just has taken the place of communism. You know, we had a decade where we're not really sure what the enemy is. You have to work in more abstract conceptions. Maybe it's liberals, it's the culture wars. Now we had a real enemy um, to battle in terms of foreign policy. And then you have a lot of enemies domestically too. And this is where, you know, liberals and feminists and so on. And they are threatening, just like during the Cold War, uh, threatening our ability to fight and protect America, to protect Christian America, because we no longer have, or at least we don't have enough strong, rugged men who are going to fight to maintain our freedom, fight to protect Christianity and American families. And this is exactly the rhetoric that people like James Dobson and so are using. Um, and so 
after 9-11, this, this uh, understanding of militant masculinity really takes hold within conservative white evangelicalism, within white evangelicalism more broadly, and it resonates with people outside of evangelical circles as well. So 9-11 is this critical catalyzing moment. And then in the 2000s, we, we see the embrace of startlingly militant and often unapologetically misogynistic um, uh, ideals of of Christian manhood. And often, um, uh, again, this is a white ideal, and uh, anti-Islam is is a huge part of this as well. The very same men who are writing about this militant Christian masculinity are often those who are most ardently um, promoting Islamophobia. You turn to the city of Colorado Springs, which has become something of a hub for two things, evangelical activism and outreach, and the military, housing megachurches and their outreach organizations, as well as numerous military bases and even the Air Force Academy. So this speaks to a broader connection you see where the military was increasingly seen as a place not only where boys might be turned into men, but men might be turned into Christians. And the war on terror became a sort of holy war for a lot of people here. So how did the earlier synthesis of masculine and religious identity adapt to the post 9-11 moment and give itself this kind of aggressive militaristic twist in these institutions? Yeah, so this was um, brewing for a long time, but again, uh, things weren't always this way. If you go back to World War II and listen to how evangelicals are talking about the military, uh, it's widely understood that the military is a place where young men would go and become corrupted. It was not kind of a, a bastion of, of morality, let's say. Uh, and then uh, as a result, evangelicals increasingly see the military as their mission field. And so by the Korean War, they're very active in proselytizing uh, members of the military. Billy Graham, um, this, this is uh, you know a key part of his evangelistic ministry. And so by the time of Vietnam, there's this idea that, you know, um, they've been quite successful. They've been, uh, there's this tight relationship between conservative evangelicals and the U.S. military, and they've been welcomed with open arms by military brass in many cases who think, you know, this could be good for discipline. This could be good um, for our troops. Um, And then, you know, Vietnam is this important era when a lot of other Americans were thinking, you know, they're they're hearing about atrocities um, committed by U.S. soldiers, and um, conservative evangelicals really pushed back against um, that narrative and instead praised again, the morality of, of America's you know, fighting men. Uh, and, and so this is this is going on for a long time. You have Ollie North and so on. Again, this, this kind of military heroism. But certainly by 9-11, you've had a, a, really a couple of generations of this, this close uh, cooperation between evangelicals, evangelical leaders, people like James Dobson, very involved in this ministry to the military. And, uh, and you have a, a growing number of evangelical chaplains and just evangelicals in the military itself, disproportionate um, uh, to their numbers in the American population. And, and so by 2000s, when you have this you know, war to save, uh, you know, war against terror, war against you know, Islam, uh, you have this very close relationship that has already been developed. And this is when, as I mentioned before, you start to see 
um, military leaders themselves or, or former military leaders start to write devotionals, start to write guides to Christianity and to Christian masculinity, um, because they are deemed by many evangelicals as, uh, you know, kind of the best example of, of Christian manhood. And so this looks like, uh, you know, being tough, being rugged, being ready to fight, being ready to use violence because this is a an evil world and you're going to need to resort to violence. It also means things like obeying your authorities, uh, following orders, and um, in places like you know. So Dobson is this key kind of uh, 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 a proselytizer of you know looking to the military as a model of, of Christian leadership. Uh, and then somebody like Mark Driscoll also very important, just em- embracing. Uh, both in proselytizing um, the uh, members of the military and um, and then using this military model to shape his own church and to shape American evangelicalism. Uh, but Colorado Springs really is ground zero for this. You have Ted Haggard's church. Uh, you have Focus on the Family, you know, just across the street from um, the U.S. Air Force Academy. You've got buses of uh, uh, New Life church members, Ted Haggard's church, being being brought every week to the Air Force Academy to lead Bible studies. I mean, the connections are really quite astounding. Um, and this is also you know, the 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 time when you uh, when, when we start seeing um, uh, kind of questions of uh, or instances of sexual abuse and sexual harassment in the U.S. military, including at the Air Force Academy. And um, what was striking to me is these have often been kind of two separate stories, the evangelical infiltration of the military and of the Air Force and of Air Force in Colorado Springs. And then you've got these issues of sexual harassment and sex abuse within the military. Um, and in fact, I think uh, it, it's it's interesting to bring these these two stories together because it's it's really the same people we're talking about. In the wake of the Bush presidency, evangelicals found themselves reinvigorated by the culture wars because of figures on both sides of the political aisle. So on the one hand, there was Sarah Palin, who seemed to be a sort of reanimation of Maribel Morgan's ideal woman. But perhaps more importantly was Barack Obama, and eventually a decade later, Hillary Clinton in her 2016 run at the White House. So for evangelicals, Obama embodied a humility that for them was often seen as a weakness, as well as he also embodied the changing dynamics of race in a country that was increasingly seeing itself as less white. On top of all this, when word broke out about Obama's pastor, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, it was clear that Obama was insufficiently patriotic to lead the country, at least in the eyes of evangelicals whose faith was infused with nationalism. So can you unpack the role Obama played in the changing orientation of American evangelicalism and how he would unwittingly and indirectly set the stage for the eventual election of Donald Trump? Yeah, first off, uh, it's important to note that not all white evangelicals uh, were anti-Obama, that in 2008, a significant number of younger evangelicals in particular ended up crossing party lines and, and they voted for Obama. Uh, not large numbers, but uh, uh, significant numbers. And this uh, really alarmed 
conservative evangelical leaders, and and they did not um, just let this slide. They were very explicit about working to reclaim that, uh, you know, to um, uh, to reclaim that share of the vote to chastise young evangelicals for going astray, people like Wayne Grudem, who up until now had really written a lot on kind of systematic theology and gender. Uh, He came out with this massive tome on, you know, Christians and politics. And, uh, you know, they were not leaving things to chance. Somebody like uh, James Dobson detested Barack Obama. And, um, you know, within conservative evangelical circles, there the level of, of really, you know, disgust towards Barack Obama uh, was remarkable. Now, uh, so as an, as an African-American uh, with a middle name, Hussein, uh, he <laughs> immediately, right, kind of uh, uh, embodied uh, many of the, the things that white evangelicals had demonized. Uh, and, uh, even, even if you don't hear race brought up explicitly, it's, um, you certainly see with the birther movement and uh, Franklin Graham's role in that, uh, was significant. Uh, you see a, a, a real, uh, attempt to other, uh, Barack Obama. He is not one of us. And that, um, could be done by claiming that he's Muslim. So, uh, alarming numbers of white evangelicals then and now believe that uh, Barack Obama is not Christian, but he is Muslim, um, and also not American. And because they had embraced Christian nationalism, I mean, these are almost the same claim, right? He's not Christian and he's not American, and uh, and and these kind of conspiracy theories were uh, alive and well and still are in conservative evangelical circles. And they were actively, ardently promoted by um, evangelical leaders um, and um, to this day. So so I think that's important to recognize. But but he was he was a particular threat, I think, to conservative evangelicals because he was so theologically articulate. Uh, he had he had come to his Christian faith, really uh, embraced his faith as an adult. Um, he could talk eloquently about that faith. He was well versed in theology, and um, so I think he was perceived as a very real danger um, to their entire worldview of you know we are Christians, uh, we hold the truth, and um, you know those outside of the circle they are the enemy. And so again, they did not leave things to chance. And uh, the energy uh, exerted within these communities by leaders in particular to demonize Barack Obama, again, just it just can't be um, uh, overstated. And, um, and that really did stir up resentment, stirred up fear that um, Christians were losing control of the country. Of course, it, it just uh, the um, uh, about face on gay marriage. Uh, with Obergefell, really um, just added fuel to the fire, but the fire was already raging before that time. And so that does set us up for 2016. The idea um, that that American Christians were under siege, that, that traditional ways of life were um, coming to an end, and this was kind of a last-ditch attempt to reclaim America 
um, from all that was evil and secular and um, harmful, uh, that had a you know, deep resonance throughout white evangelical communities. But again, it had such resonance because this was exactly what uh, their leaders had been preaching, uh, not just for eight years, but really in different guises for several decades. Finally, getting to the 2016 election, you have argued that Trump is less an aberration and more a culmination of the last century of evangelical political engagement. And there are a number of ways we can break this down, but I want to start by bringing us back to the Republican primaries. You point out that evangelicals had plenty of more traditional and religious candidates to choose from who would have at first glance been a more sensible choice for them. Candidates like Ted Cruz, Mike Huckabee, Marco Rubio, and Ben Carson, all of whom had much greater religious credentials than the thrice-married business mogul and reality TV host, all of which raises the question, how did Trump emerge as the winner of the evangelical vote when the Republican Party was stacked with much more religiously qualified candidates for them to choose from? Yeah. So in 2015, uh, you know, I was watching evangelicals closely. And uh, at first, you know, it is true for for evangelicals who will point out that, you know, in the very early stages of the campaign, the majority of white evangelicals were very skeptical of Donald Trump. I mean, he he was the kind of unknown, right? He he was this reality show star, um, New York, uh, you know, formerly liberal. Uh, you know, what what was his view on abortion? What was his view on anything? It was, you know, it, he was a celebrity candidate, but he was untested, so it wasn't at all clear who he was or what he was going to do. And many people evangelicals, non-evangelicals thought this was a publicity stunt, thought this was a joke. As uh, time went on, it became clearer that yes, he was he was going to back you know conservative uh, views on topics like abortion, on religious freedom. Uh, but even then, yes, you had many other candidates uh, to choose from and many other with far stronger religious credentials. But during the primary season, um, uh, it became increasingly clear that I mean, Trump, on the debate stage, up against these other candidates, uh, I mean, he was crass, he was uh, at times ruthless, he was completely unorthodox, uh, you know, absolutely not politically correct, he was rude, all of these things. Instead of turning off many evangelicals, Growing numbers were actually drawn to him, and here I would also, um, uh, you know, not put Trump in his own category entirely. That we need to kind of see a spectrum of um, of uh, militancy and militant masculinity across uh, the uh, kind of Republican primary field. Uh, you know, on on one end, you might have somebody like you know, soft spoken um, Ben Carson, um, you know, African American, um, deeply conservative, deeply religious, but you know, not scoring high on the militant masculinity um, scale. Um, on the other end, you had Ted Cruz, and so and Ted Cruz emerged as really the you know, g- giving Trump a run for his money down the final stretch. And I would suggest that we we need to not see the this all as Trump versus every other candidate, but that uh, evangelicals who are drawn to Ted Cruz 
uh, were also likely to be don- uh, drawn to, to Donald Trump. So I want to kind of hold those in the, the same kind of category. But in the end, Trump was better. He, he was more militant. He was more ruthless. He um, really took on the mantle of the strong man, was very explicit about, you know, he was going to protect Christianity, that Christians were under siege and we need to take back our power, he said. And, and so he was really playing to that conservative base and uh, to evangelicals that wanted to fight, that they wanted somebody who would fight for them. Um, who was not going to be cowed by political correctness or any conventions of civility. Um, And they had been so primed during the eight years of um, the Obama administration, um, told by their leaders that they were under siege, that they, you know, um, the end of Christian America was was upon them. And so they were ready to um, to embrace somebody who who would. use any means necessary. And it turns out, um, just like the heroes they had long um, embraced in their ideals of, of Christian manhood, it was a man who was not actually formed by Christian virtues, who was the man best equipped to fight this kind of ruthless battle. Right? If, you, if you look at you know, uh, the ideas of Christian virtue, Loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemy, turning the other cheek, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are not really warrior attributes, right? But if you can find a person who was formed outside of this tradition, he's the guy you're going to want to lead the charge. And that's 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 a huge part of the appeal of Donald Trump. He was not going to be constrained by traditional Christian virtue, and they loved him precisely because of that fact. Another thing that shocked and surprised many was evangelicals' willingness to stand by Trump in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape, where Trump was heard bragging about grabbing women without their consent. But you argue that this is perhaps a learned response evangelicals now have after decades of sexual scandals plaguing their churches, and you bring up a depressingly long list of religious authority figures abusing their power and influence and their congregation's willingness to continue supporting them, either ignoring the situation or diverting blame elsewhere. This speaks to some of the marital and gender dynamics we spoke of earlier. So can you explain the dynamics you see going on in a number of these scandals and how their experience with sexual scandal perhaps prepared and primed evangelicals to not only tolerate but defend Trump's behavior here? Yeah, so in the years where I'd set aside this research, I didn't stop paying attention. And I, I kept tracking some, kind of that my uh, uh, chief proponents of militant masculinity that I had become familiar with in the early 2000s. And over the years, I watched as one after another became implicated either directly or indirectly in sexual abuse scandals. Um, uh, so directly as perpetrators, indirectly covering up um, and condoning or excusing uh, their friends who who were directly implicated. And so I had um, uh, just been watching this happen over and over again. And at that time, this was pre-Me Too, pre-Church Too movement. And so almost all of the evidence for this was just on blogs. 
that victims and victim advocates were trying to bring this to light. And I was reading these blogs um, for years. And uh, then in, in 2016, Access Hollywood, I watched, as everybody did, um, a couple of evangelical leaders briefly waver in their support for Trump. Within a week or two, they were all back. All those who had been supporting him were back to supporting him. And that's really when this clicked for me. I've seen this before. I've got, you know, reams of evidence. I have watched this pattern over and over again because evangelicals have supported and excused and very quickly forgiven men in their own circles who have committed abuses against women. They have very frequently ended up blaming the woman. She wasn't modest enough. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, you know, his his wife must not have been meeting her needs. There are you know, all kinds of excuses. And I had seen that over and over again. And that's when I realized that we should expect nothing different of somebody like Donald Trump. Again, they were drawn to him because of his kind of testosterone-driven masculinity, his, his aggression. And Christian writers had been saying for uh, for for over a decade, for decades at this point, you know, that uh, God made men aggressive um, and that makes them dangerous, but that that aggression is to be used for good. And it's going to come with some with some side effects and you just have to deal with that. And, and so I saw that in um, in the evangelical embrace for Trump. And, and I thought, you know, th- th- these are longstanding patterns and we should not be shocked. Um, and we have to understand what is actually meant by quote unquote family values and what dynamics are really at play. And you write that last chapter. Uh, it's it's actually much shorter now than my original draft. And my editor, he just said, you know, this is way too much. There are many, many stories, uh, horrific stories that are not in this last chapter. I had to winnow things down. Um, so I left out all of the uh, like abuses in evangelical missions organizations. I, I, I just cut out essentially every uh, sexual scandal, even though it fit these exact patterns, if um, the guy involved wasn't somehow already in my narrative somewhere. And so this is just a, a small selection of these patterns. When I first sat down to write this book in uh, 2017, uh, one of the first things I did actually was consult a lawyer because, again, this was pre-Me Too. And much of I knew that this these sexual abuse stories needed to be a part of this 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 book. But I I wasn't sure how, you know, liability issues came to play because, again, this was all, all the information was out on blogs. And um, in the ensuing couple of years, we had Me Too and we had Church Too. And then the national media picked up these stories. And, um, and, and uh, it, it, that was, uh, for me as a writer, a kind of cathartic moment to see uh, people who had, who had, had stood up, who had tried to raise the alarm, who now were getting national attention so that other victims could hear these stories and would feel empowered to also call out their abusers. And so while I was writing this book, that all happened, and that enabled me to include many of these stories uh, in, uh, in, in the final chapter of this book. One thing a lot of people have often wondered in the last couple of years is if the Trump voting evangelicals are really evangelicals, how well they know their scripture or how often they attend church often become points of debate and ways to try and discount significant portions of the evangelical vote as being representative of Christianity. 
You argue against this approach, not because you think all Trump voters are closeted theological scholars or regular church attenders, but instead because the Trump voting evangelical represents a new form of Christian identity that has synthesized various political, religious, and gendered themes into a new sort of Christianity that demands to be taken seriously, even if it itself remains very unscholarly in its approach. So can you unpack this a bit, both with why you think it's wrong to say Trump voters aren't real Christians and what sort of Christians you think Trump voters are? When evangelical leaders themselves and most evangelical leaders are here, I'm talking about kind of elites. So people like Russell Moore, people, you know, who are writing at Christianity Today or editing Christianity Today, teaching at Wheaton College. Uh, you know, this sort of evangelical leader, for them, you know, these are the intellectuals um, and the heart of evangelicalism for them is, you know, to their minds, the, the theology. They, they know their theology. They love their theology. And so when they look at evangelicalism uh, more broadly, they place theology, theological beliefs at the heart of evangelical identity. And this is how you get kind of a checklist of evangelicals believe in the authority of the scriptures, in you know conversionism, this born again experience, and you have this kind of checklist. And if you if you check those boxes, you are an evangelical. Um, so you could be a black Protestant and check those boxes, and yep, you're an evangelical. You could be you know a, a, a global Christian and you check those those boxes, you're an evangelical. Uh, which you know may or may not be a valid way of organizing things, but it can only get us so far in understanding kind of white evangelicalism as a cultural and religious and political movement in the United States right now. And I teach at a Christian university, and I have many evangelical students, many just Christian students, including many who have gone to Christian schools. And what I've discovered is you know there are high levels of theological illiteracy even among, uh, you know, deeply Christian and evangelical students who have self-selected a Christian university. And uh, that's not surprising because I think for ordinary uh, evangelicals, much, you know, they aren't sitting around, most of them, reading theological tomes. Their um, religious formation happens much more through listening to Christian radio uh, watching Christian television, you know, maybe Christian Bible studies. But if you look at the the materials that are often being used uh, in these Bible studies, you know, women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, they're not theologically rigorous, but they are um, presenting a kind of identity. And by virtue of the fact of even tuning into this Christian culture, uh, they are participating in in an evangelical subculture. Uh, and so, you know, if you listen to the same music, uh, you're, you're going to feel a bond with somebody. If you, if you grew up with um, focus on the family, playing every day in your home, that is, that will shape. Uh, that's, that's spiritually formative for many individuals. And so I, uh, I want to, to take that cultural experience of religion very seriously. And that doesn't mean that theology doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that church attendance is utterly irrelevant, but it should, church attendance or, you know, theological beliefs should not be kind of the, um, uh, the deciding factor in, in how we talk about evangelicals. And so what I really focus by looking at cultural identity 
and sources of cultural identity, that leads me to kind of draw boundaries in a different way. Uh, and, and you see a lot of affinities across maybe evangelicals who attend church very frequently and maybe slightly less frequently, but they're all consuming the same cultural products. And I can also see affinities kind of across religious lines. So you get, you know, connections to conservative Catholics who share many of these cultural ideals and also uh, affinities with secular conservatives who are also going to be holding up this idea of, uh, you know, uh, militant masculinity or rugged, quote unquote, traditional manhood, traditional femininity, and that these are the bonds that are really unifying uh, uh, many Americans today. And it's not some, you know, theological conception of, you know, God's sovereignty or, um, you know, the atonement of Christ uh, that is actually uh, defining this this religious and cultural movement. And so I just wanted to take uh, the cultural dimensions of religion very seriously. And this is why in the book, you know, I'll talk about somebody like, um, well, well, like like the TV show Duck Dynasty, uh, which again is going to get some eye rolls and you laugh it off. Uh, but it's it's just this beautiful example. Uh, it appeals to kind of red state Christians. It, it appeals to people who are not particularly you know church attending Christians, and it appeals to many you know church attending evangelicals, all of whom kind of see their values um, uh, represented in you know in humorous ways uh, at at times, but um, in in powerful ways. And those are dynamics I think we need to take much more seriously. And I think those are dynamics that many evangelical elites uh, have not really reckoned with, which is why many have been caught so off guard by the limits of their own power in this political moment. And uh, by the fact that there are sources of authority within the evangelical community that are extremely powerful, popular sources that are undermining their own authority as, quote unquote, leaders of evangelicalism. As a final question, you speak in the conclusion of the book about how, while this hyper-masculine vision of Christianity is an undeniable part of our current cultural landscape, it's not an inevitable result of engaging with Christian texts and ideas. And you highlight a number of ways in which people find themselves leaving it behind because there are certain tensions and antagonisms built into it that for some eventually become intolerable and unbearable. So to end this, what do you think are some of the cracks in this worldview that have become untenable for some? And how do you see them leading to various people exiting from these communities? Talking with uh, evangelicals and former evangelicals was fascinating in in writing this book and actually also in in the way the book has been received. And uh, some of the, for many evangelicals who grew up um, just kind of steeped in this ideology, uh, it was always an uncomfortable fit. And um, for many men, many men have told me stories of, you know, reading Wild at Heart, of being taught from pulpits, this is what American mask uh, or what Christian manhood looks like, and just knowing in their heart that they would never measure up. Um, some of these men walked away. Um, and, and here, sexual orientation is also um, a big part of this for for any gay Christians, right? This it, it wasn't just masculinity, but this stark gender difference. Uh, if, if that is what it means to be a Christian, then there's just no way that they could live into that identity. 
Um, and, but for other men too, who just, that wasn't the way they were, they were made. Um, so some of these men just, just left. Some of these men stayed within these communities, but in their words, always felt like second-class Christians and second-class men. And, uh, but for some, they stayed within these communities and still embraced the ideal, knowing that they fell short personally. And so they were, were you know, the men who would willingly kind of follow the alpha male in their church. Um, you know, somebody like Donald Trump comes along that for men who felt insufficiently masculine, they could look at these men who kind of, you know, well, had the balls to lead and realize that, yes, those are the men who deserve to lead and I am not that man. And so there are, there are a variety of different reactions. One of the ways in which men um, say that they realize the kind of shortcomings of this ideology was simply um, listening to women. And in evangelical churches, there is often a huge kind of divide. So the men study the Bible in the men's Bible studies, and the women study the Bible in women's Bible studies. Um, And so there's this kind of sex segregation. And um, a number of men told me when I actually started listening to really smart, theologically astute women, I realized, you know, none of this stuff makes sense if you, if you, if you break down the isolation. Uh, and also, you know, some men talked about, you know, having been reared according to complementarianism, gender difference, you know, this is the way to be a faithful Christian, the only way. And then as they got older, um, went out on their own, they met egalitarian Christian couples who were deeply spiritual. And they just had no concept that this was even, this was even a possibility. And it just completely messed with their framework, messed with their ideology. And so these are, these are all factors that kind of, um, uh, led men and, and women, uh, to question this for women. It was often running up against abusive situations, frankly, abusive power and seeing how, um, how this quote unquote Christian idea of masculinity and femininity just um, uh, could be toxic. And then again, uh, in, in recent years, uh, Donald Trump has laid this all bare. And there are many uh, evangelicals now who are ready to, eager to take another look at how we got to this place because they are sensing that you know, this, this is not what they meant. This is not what they understood Christianity to be. And, and so there's a lot of introspection, I think, happening now and asking, you know, how did, what went wrong? And I think um, among some, you know, how have we all been complicit in this? Excellent. So that brings us to the end of the book. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? I am uh, starting to explore a project that is kind of the flip side to Jesus and John Wayne, looking at ideals of white Christian womanhood uh, and kind of tracing their kind of cultural expressions and their um, um, political implications as well. So I've I've got a, a bunch of research already kind of sitting around and uh, I'm ready to start pulling that together uh, just as soon as I kind of uh, uh, figure out this whole online, hybrid, remote, uh, in-person teaching situation for the fall. And, uh, and of course, uh, Jesus and John Wayne is uh, 
highly relevant in this political moment. And so I'm, I'm kept pretty busy, uh, kind of uh, still still talking on that. But I'm, I'm really eager to to start to pull together some of my research and, and tell the story of white Christian womanhood. Yeah, that sounds fascinating and like a great way to jump off of this book. So Kristen Dumez, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. That's great.